Yeah, I, I, in my circles, he's not. In the circles that I'm in, William Carey is um, not polarizing. He's a hero. I mean, he's really a hero of the faith. Um, man, God did things with him. Nobody else did. Well, that's how I think about yeah. it. I'm like, well. Right. There's always somebody out there to throw stones, and it's so right. sad, and you know. And, and you don't, they don't know their situation, and often they haven't read his biographies and see what they have done or have ever been over there and see the fruit. I don't want to fall into that camp. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. So I really encourage you to read it. Okay. All right, let's take the new notes here. We'll see how far we get. Um, I gave you quite a bit, so we may end up on these uh, next week as well. Um, one, some current issues in missions. There is no quick and easy method in cross-cultural missions, but sometimes a fresh approach may help. Let's start with Ad, with Adam or with Jesus. In South America, the new tribe's missions found found primitive people who seem to know nothing about God or Jesus. They find people like this every once in a while. Um, the tribal people did not feel a need for God. Stories about Jesus did not interest them. As a villager sat outside their huts every evening, there was plenty of time to sit and talk with them. So the missionary tried a new method, telling God's story from the beginning to the end, one session every day. Over a period of weeks and months, they taught the whole Bible, starting with creation and Adam, and then Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, the prophets. Eventually, they reached the birth of Jesus, his ministry, his rejection, his death, and resurrection. By now, the whole tribe was interested, in the, and the whole tribe was ready to accept the Savior. This method is called chronological storing. Many missionaries over uh, all over the world became excited about it, but there is no evidence that it works uh, anywhere except in primitive tribes. It does not work in the Muslim context. Why not? Well, educated Muslims already have a strong concept of God and a strong prejudice against Christianity. They have a different story about Old Testament characters, right? You can talk to a Muslim, you get to Abraham, and, and, and um, man, where's my mind? What's his oldest son? Ishmael. Ishmael. That was after. <laughs> Ishmael doesn't get the birth right. They're done with the Bible. That's where they say it's over. Because he deserved it. And he should have had it. That means all of those lands, everything that God gave Israel, are ours. This is why they have no problem trying to get a nuke to drop it on Israel, <laughs> even to this day. And by God's grace, that doesn't happen. How does that not happen? <laughs> um, so we have to understand, that's where the Muslims are. So you try to take this through with the Muslims, they're going, yeah, we, you get to Abraham, we're done. They, they're, they, they, are, they are considerate of Abraham. But when he did not give the birthright to Ishmael, they're done. And that's where all of the problems you have today, from Gaza Strip to the oil fields of, of the Middle East, it all comes down to that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And they're still very wild and still very much a thorn in the flesh. All cost because Abraham. Yeah. Um, and they failed. Abraham and Sarah failed to trust God. I mean, so next time you want to get ahead of God on something, think it's just a great example, right? They did not wait on God, and there was the birth of now these tribes. And then, and then it's not very hard in our Old Testament survey that we see where the sons of Ishmael link up 
with the Edomites. <laughs> and, and so now you understand where all these tribes, and that's why, you know, when you talk to people in the military in particular, I've had some real good conversations. What's the problem over there? The problem is, because these are all different tribes, they're governed by nobody. So you think, oh, we got these tribes who are sympathetic to the Americans over here and they want to get rid of Saddam Hussein or I want to get rid of that. Okay, you got them. There's 40 more over there you ain't getting because they don't like them. And they're all wild donkeys who run around and, and do what they want to do. They don't even like each other. Now, they didn't like Americans, so they grouped up with that one. Um, yeah, it's going. I did remember the president. So, so, that, so that's, a, that's a great thing. Now, let me go back to the story form to kind of round that out, and I'll move on to the next section here. Um, I started teaching this. It does work in so many places. Um, I found a group of people in, out in the desert, just ranch families. And the way we got it, we did a VBS there, and we had like 10 kids, and it was every kid in town. <laughs> we do VBSs, and we get 100% of the children. Can you imagine doing that in Daytona? We'd get 100% of the Now, one community, there was we could, three. We could put them all in our building. Right. I can't imagine. <laughs> I don't know. We did a place in Eagleville, California, which is right on the border of Nevada and Oregon. And um, there was a family in our church from there, and they begged us. So we went back. There were three kids. And we took a whole team down there. The team looked at me on Monday morning when only three kids showed up. And we found out that's all the kids were there. There was no more than three kids in that community. I said... What would Jesus do? <laughs> they go, we're putting this whole program, aren't we, on? You betcha. <laughs> and then we did a dinner of that on a Friday night, and the whole community came out. I got to share the gospel of the entire community because we spent three days with three children. They were overwhelmed that we would do that. And uh, uh, But what would happen, that would start where I could get a Bible study into that area. And as I found out, most of it, before I get to the story, one little girl in that community said, when we asked them if they'd ever heard of Jesus, they said, well, my dad says his name a lot. <laughs> <laughs> they had never heard of Jesus Christ. This is in America. Mm-hmm. And this is very much more common than we like to think it is. What so, years was this? Just- this is in the... When my children born? 90s. Yeah. So um, this happened very regularly out there in the deserts in Nevada and Oregon and, and uh, California. And so what I did often is I took a cry, a cry I, I, I had some materials that I used, but eventually I just had to wrote my own stuff, a creation of Christ study. And I would, I would go to every, I go to a little town, say this town like Eagleville. And I'd go to the postmaster. There'd be a little trailer there, and it was where everybody got their mail. You drove in from your ranch, and you got your mail. And, and there's a postmaster there, and she's there, or he's there five hours a day or something like that. So I'd go, and I'd say, how many active boxes do you have? Well, she goes, we have like 60 boxes. I go, how many are active? How many people live here? We have 30. <laughs> they don't like to talk about it because they may get shut down, you know. And they, are they Baptists? they going to keep the rolls going? <laughs> no, they... they it's it's all numbers for whether the government's going to keep them there, and then and nobody wants to lose a postmaster because now you can't mail mail, you know, like get by stamps and all that. So I'd go in and say, well, how many active boxes? Okay, so I would like to pay to put a flyer in every one of these boxes. Half the time they go, no, we'll just stick it in there, you know. So I would I would write out who I was, what I'm doing, 
and I would like to come tell you the story of the Bible. And we're going to start in the beginning and do an overview of the Bible and see if it has anything for our lives in it. I'll be at this school, one-room schoolhouse, on 6.30 on Monday night, um, and I'll be here every other week and hear the dates, put it all on there, put it, and put it in a box, not knowing if a soul would show up. Well, I mean, there's nothing going on in these towns. I mean, uh, you know, the fair comes once a year, you know, they all go to town for fair, but there's nothing going on. There's, there's, there's a gas station, a store slash bar, and sometimes a post office is in there as well. Do people think you are like a cult? <laughs> well, they, they, they knew who, uh, my, um, usually my name got out ahead of me because I cowboyed so much and we had a ranch. Yeah. So I was known as a cowboy preacher. And so that got ahead of me and uh, in a lot of cases. But I would, I know, I don't know how many times I did this. And I would go and I, I, I would talk to the school and they'd give me permission and I would actually pay for the rental of the school building. And usually it's like sometimes it's $25, yeah. you know. And uh, I'd be there and I'd be driving going, God, Please send somebody. Because <laughs> I don't know anybody. Seriously. That. I mean, that's how it would often start. And and uh, I never had a time where at least a six to a dozen people did not show up. Mm-hmm. And I started that ministry. And they, as I taught them, and I would really hold off the gospel. I, I really held off the gospel for at least the first several sessions. Mm-hmm. Because I would get through creation fall and flood and God's about ready to destroy all of mankind <laughs> you, know, you know they all evolution they don't they've not you know a lot of them have already heard that and I leave them hanging there I said you think there's other people in this town need to hear this yeah yeah we're bringing our neighbors next week pretty soon I would have them come in and that's how I did that for years and years and I had this cycle that I would do I would drive um I mean, sometimes it's in Nevada, sometimes in southeastern Oregon, sometimes it's in California. And I'd go to these outposts that I had. We had a church that was in the middle of all of that. And and then I'd go to these outposts, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Every night I would teach somewhere. I'd stay home Saturday because I had to preach on Sunday. Start it all again. And a lot of them were every other because I had so many outposts. And I'd be teaching the same thing in outposts all over the place. And then as God started saving people, they started coming to our church. And our church outgrew our town. And so we, our church was bigger than our town. Now our town was only fifty, but we were eighty, yeah. wow. and it was a mega church. So you are the new town. <laughs> yeah. How did you get into cowboy? If the story's not too long, how? Yeah, uh, my middle name is Wayne, named after John Wayne. Okay, it was in my blood from the littlest boy. So you were were you a rancher growing no, up? No, it was yeah. not. It, your early stories don't sound like you were raised very much in the San Francisco Bay Area. Was moved when I was sixteen to Northern California. Um, but by junior high, I'd already found a, a boarding place where they boarded horses and got a job mucking stalls. Okay. And the lady watched me work with horses. She said, oh, man, you seem to know what you're doing. Or at least you're not scared of them. Taught me how to ride. I mean, it just went from there to there, you know. But then I got in high school and played sports in college and yeah. all that. But I came right back to it after I got injured and came back towards the ministry. Um, I bought my first little ranch and barn and started training horses and and, and what really started it for me in a lot of ways is when I got hooked up with my mentor, when I came back from college and started Bible college, I went to college to play basketball and baseball. 
got hurt, came home, knew the Lord. It was kind of the Jonah thing. I got swallowed by an ankle surgery and spit out back in <laughs> where I was supposed to be all along. Right. Um, and, Did you uh, meet at college? No. So I got home. Uh, I got home, and um, I knew I knew I was wrong. And I knew from the beginning I should have never taken that scholarship because God had called me in the ministry. I was 17 years old, junior year, going to Christian, college, Christian high school. Sitting on the left side, third row back, inside seat. Never forget this. A man named D. Chalandeau. He was a French missionary to Russia. Spent his life smuggling Bibles. In when, of course, the Iron Curtain was there. Wow. Um, had been jailed many times and escaped, and had incredible stories. And I and the Lord just sat on me that day. And uh, and I said, okay, Lord, I will preach for you. I, I always had a great love for the Lord and great love for theology and studying it. And, um, but here's how we're going to do it. About a year later when I had all these scholarships coming at me, I said, God, I think we're going to do this through sports. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where I came up with a saying, figure out what God's doing. Ask him if he can, you can join what he's doing. Because most of us will say, hey, we want to do this. God, will you join me? Right as though we have the right to ask God to join us. So after all of that, I went off, took this basketball, baseball scholarship, um, played three games, broke my ankle so severely. I went through a surgery, and the doctor, I went through three of them down there. The doctor said, he, it's so funny, he said, you better take up golf because that's the most athletic thing you ever do. You never will run on your ankle again. You broke it so bad. And it was actually broke for a year. I didn't know it. And um, anyway... Lord healed me in a year, and I was dunking again. I played I played summer league basketball. I used to dunk at five nine. I could jump. I was you know I, I mean I I was an athlete. I mean uh, there was lots of lots of colleges offered me to play, and um, but at the end of the summer league, they offered me back my full ride, a full ride again to play, and I couldn't get over it. And I remember it was like middle of August, camp starting, you know, because athletes come in and all of that, and I went into the academic dean and the the athletic director and his name is Pete Reese big man from where was he from back here somewhere um, he, he went to Cedarville and uh, or Cedarville Ohio uh, big farm boy and I looked and I said Coach Reese God has called me in the ministry and I've been disobedient for a year I gotta go I was going to be a starting point guard that year <laughs> then they were going to let me play baseball another year and then I was going to have to make a decision I was a starting catcher baseball and uh, he said get your stuff and go obey God I'll find another point guard <laughs> and uh, when I went up to pay phone because there were pay phones back then mm-hmm. remember that Fred? probably 10 cents maybe a nickel Debbie you, you remember yeah, there's three of us in here remember this oh, no, no. I had one here in Holly Hill I saw it I like, what is that? no phone. way <laughs> LPGA US one is the little gas. It's like a. Quick There's a payphone there. Yeah, there is a payphone there. I couldn't <laughs> believe my eyes. I was like, whoa. You should see how much it costs. Well, in college, you would line up at the payphone yeah. in the hallway in the dorm, and you would wait Sunday night because everybody called home for the parents, you know. Um, so I went to the I went to the payphone. It's just outside the gym where the and I I called my dad, hmm. who has never been a very spiritual leader to me. I believe he's saved. I pray he is. Um, my mom was the one who, who infected me the most with, with the gospel, love for Jesus. And I said, Dad, I'm coming home. 
and I had already told them the week before they had given me my full ride back. <laughs> so I had this, all my schooling paid for. <laughs> so I'm coming home. And man, I just remember holding the phone out and they were yelling at me. You know, and they just didn't understand. And I said, Dad, I, I can't. I disobeyed God coming here. And so that's when I came back to Northern California. And what happened, as soon as I got home, 1st of September, I called my mentor, who went on to be my mentor. He was my basketball coach in high school, the most godly man I'd ever been around. And um, I said, I knew he was a pastor somewhere. And I called him up one day and I said, Jerry, I don't know where you go or what you do on Sunday, but can I come with you? Those are my exact words. I was 19 years old. And uh, he goes, I'll pick you up at 6 o'clock Sunday morning. I started ministry at 19 years old. And he took me, drove me out in the middle of nowhere. He had a little church planted out in this farming, ranching community that he was trying to reach a bunch of people that lived way out. And and then that night we, we went we stopped and had lunch somewhere and then we went up farther into the mountains and we did another service to in a school to a bunch of people who lived up in the mountains that there was no church in their community and uh, that fire got lit in me and um, so along the way um, I'd already been into horses and, and knew those type of things and when I got out of the athletic world I still played a lot of ball I played some city league and and, and you know played some baseball and some things around in, in my spare time because I was an athlete. Um, but um, I I started buying horses up and started training horses. And Jerry said, look, it's very difficult to get into these people. Um, they're very close-knit, hold their cards to themselves type of people. So he said, you should, you're, you really handle your horses well. You really developed a good horsemanship. They'll really respect that. Offer yourself to go ride for them for free and see if you can just do some day work and help them. And let's see if we can get your name out around there with your character and your person and who you are. Sounds good to me. So I started offering my help out there, and a guy took it up. And one guy took it up, and another guy took it up, and pretty soon um, I was doing what they did. And so now everything changed. Those guys started coming to church and started bringing their families and their neighbors started coming. And the, and none of them were saved, but they knew who I was. And I'd introduced them to Jerry and he was the preacher and God just started saving these people. We were having baptisms and horse troughs and ponds, and, you know, because we didn't own any buildings anywhere. We rented schools and, you know, Quonset hunts. And I mean, we, we met in all kinds of things, barns and, you know, starting churches, and um, that's how I got going. And so the cowboy thing just became my way to get into the culture without compromise. And so when we moved, finally Jerry just believed God was leading him to start a ranch school for troubled kids um, where we could get them away from the city, teach them work ethic and the gospel, and uh, see if we could change their lives you know particularly by the gospel but by but even just teaching them how to work so he bought a ranch and he said guess where we're going i go where are we going by then i'm full in i mean wherever he says i go he loaned me out for two years to another church that needed help and youth and so i youth pastored to the church for two years and then he needed me back and so i said see you and i went back over here because i was I, I did honestly i had learned to submit there was actually two men jack had a partner i mean jerry had a partner named jack jack and jerry and he had other churches going so we got loaned out to them for another year and get their sunday school program by this time i'm dating gina and i'm telling gina uh, i'm going into the ministry in fact i'm already in it 
And so here's what we're doing on Thursday night. We're driving up to this town called Montgomery Creek where Cody's dad now pastors. That was a church plant of my my ministry partner. We went in there and taught for at least a year or two um, in that church where Cody's dad's at now. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We stopped there and, and said hi to him. Um, and Gina taught the girls and I taught the boys and then we'd drive up there on a Tuesday or Thursday night, open the gym. They would just give you the keys to the gym, the public school and say, here, here's a key. Great. We'd open it up. All the, every kid from the neighborhood would come. Every kid. You know, in the mountains. And they'd come down. We'd play basketball and volleyball with them. Sit them on the center court and teach them Jesus in the Bible. And that's how he started. Did Cody hear about the church before he came here? He, didn't, he just showed up. He no, he showed him. up. We had him over to dinner after church. Here's this kid from, you know, Emory-Riddle. Em, em, em and he just shows up at the church. And he met Bobby Surfing. And, uh, and I meet him. Through Bobby. Yeah, I meet him. And I go, well, what are you doing after church? He goes, well, I'm just going to go back to my dorm. And I go, well, why don't you come to our house and have dinner? So he comes over to our house, and we said, well, Cody, where are you from? He goes, well, I'm from this little town, you know. Yeah, you, never. You, I go, well, we're from California. He goes, yeah, but nobody, nobody would know. But he goes, I'm from this little place called Montgomery Creek. I go, Monkey Creek? <laughs> you know, he just starts, nobody, because you know, everybody calls it that, you know. And, and I go, I, that's where I started ministry. He goes, my dad passed it. I go, I was one of the pastors in that church. And so that was all, I mean, right when he got here. So that set Cody and I in some good relationships. So that's how that all got going. And um, and this, so then eventually we started this school, and that was a really difficult leap of faith. In fact, to this day, Gene and I believe the the goal was never the school. The goal was to get Gene and I to the, to the farthest remote of California out there to get into that because the school failed after two years and Jerry moved away by that time I'd been with Jerry for probably now eight years ministering in different ways with him and with other people and he said look I spent everything I had on this I'm broke I gotta go back and start a new ministry and, and do some work he actually took a job um, and he says but I think God brought you here for you to stay here to plant this church because we our goal was plant a church start the school and plant a church and all that and um and I said, I was 27, maybe less than that. I don't remember. I'd have to ask Gina how old I was. But I said, oh, no. I said, Jerry, I am. By that time, I, my pride had been broken. I didn't want to preach. I just loved working for these guys. <laughs> you know, you guys preach, I'll handle the kids, I'll do evangelism, I'll do outreach, I'll do all that. And I love doing that. I really did. And he said, Jerry goes, you're handling the word. Is You're going to far out, outgrow me, outteach me. Your gifts are far better, and God's broken your pride. I'm leaving. You're the preacher. And I, I never met him. I'll never forget Fort Bidwell. It's about 400 yards long town. <laughs> I remember watching him drive out <laughs> with his stock trailer loaded with everything he owned and standing in the street going, God, what have you done? Because <laughs> everybody left. The teachers we had bought to start the school, um, everybody left. And it was Gene and I were the only ones left. And so... God providentially worked that out. And I'm in, here I am in a very tight-knit community. It has an Indian reservation on it, and it's all ranches. That's it. There's nobody. There's no other way of life in that area. And um, so I just started writing for everybody who would let me write for them. And there I had to make money, so I charged them day work. But, you know, I, they paid me $60 a day. I provided my own truck, trailer, and horse for $60. <laughs> I remember one year, Gina and I made a total. We made $12,000 one year. We just thought, wow, look how much money God has given us. <laughs> we were just like, wow, this is great. 
in California. Yeah, <laughs> we made twelve thousand dollars, and um, so we we didn't make much for a long, long time. And uh, the Lord really, I mean, there's days we could rub two nickels together. But God, I mean, we we're the story of open the front door. I remember my wife crying one day and saying, "I have nothing. I have no food for the children or for you." And um, I said, come on, you've got to have something. I go looking through the covers, <laughs> nothing. And I'll never forget opening the refrigerator door, and there was just a box of baking soda in there. <laughs> I thought, that. Oh, she's, she's really right. There is really nothing. And then open the front door to walk out, and here were two bags of groceries. Somebody, I mean, we didn't tell anybody. <laughs> I, I remember other times where we were so broke, and there was $500 cash i mean this is in the early 90s in our mailbox um at, at our post office because she had to how did that happen it was a, it was a handwritten note I, she didn't i don't know how that happened but it was in our i don't know somehow i opened up i still to these days don't know who this who that ever came from and uh and it, it could have been an unsaved person because I was riding for all these ranches, trying to make a living. And eventually I got to where they really recognized me and I started managing ranches. But we've already planted the churches by now, the church is going, I got all these outposts going, so I'm cowboying and working. I, I would sleep about two, three hours a night and back up and go. And it was a really crazy life there for about 10 yeah, years. along the way here too. Yeah, we had four of them somewhere <laughs> along the way. They all, sorry, we moved there with a, with a two or three month old and then we left with four, you know. So, um, but that's where that all started. And you know, I, I realized. I, I mean, I started sharing the gospel with people, and that was it. I mean, they closed right there. I go, I'm not ever going to get anywhere with this, you know. And so I, I began writing for them and conversations back in the drag. When you know, um, when you're back pushing cows in your back, it's called the drag. And um, a lot of their Mexican help and stuff, they would shove back there, you know, and the owner would usually ride point out front and the sons would ride swing. And, you know, you're moving thousands of cows, you know, 20 miles a day to get them out and stuff. It's, it's quite, it's quite a hard work, but, but eventually they drift back and talk to me and Vincent, I'll never admit, I think the breakthrough was one of the main ranchers that I worked for that his mom died. And they didn't have anybody to turn to. Well, what do, you, what do you do if somebody's dead? You know, she's in my house and, you know, we take care of her. And let's call Scott. So here I come. Finally got in the door. And we got dead grandma there. And um, now death and life and afterlife all becomes the subject. And I finally get to share the gospel where they're listening. And that just led from one to another. And I started doing everybody's funerals. And um, they started coming to church. When we do outside services, they would come. Inside services, they wouldn't come. They wouldn't want to go in the building. They'd tell me it would fall on them. I mean, this is mission. So, I mean, when I... When, said, this is uh, better than those. Yes. Yeah. Uh, those it, are good. It, we can it, read that. It's really... It was, it was really missions in every way um, that, that we, we learned to try to reach these people. Um, they were very difficult. Cowboys or ranchers are like this. They hold their cards like this and look at yours. <laughs> they let you see anything there. And uh, so I had to learn to lay mine down. And I had to live it. Uh, I was riding a lot of colts, getting bucked off. You know, everybody else swears and shoots their horse or dog or something like that. You know, and I got bucked off and got to hold my tongue, you know, because it hurts. And I mean, all kinds of things like that. And the God just gave us inroads. And 
But as soon as he gave me inroad where there was an open door, what do I believe? And you can't believe when you're sitting back in the drag eating, you know, staring at the south end of northbound cattle all day long. Um, <laughs> the conversations that will come up. You know, you get all kinds of conversations. We had a great dog, so if a you know, set of cows breaks off, go get them. And uh, anyway, and then you go back to be able to share Christ with these guys. And a lot of them just, you know, they're such good salt of the earth people. They raise their own food. They're not dependent upon anything for anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're generational. They take care of their elderly. Their families work together. I mean, you know, they're, they're the hardest salt, and, salt of the earth type people you'd ever be around. So they don't see themselves in need. Well, this is a good message. You should take this to the Indian reservation. And that's how they would look at it. They, they were very difficult for them to see their sins, so you had to really work and walk through stuff like, "Well, have you ever lied?" You know, and you know, and kind of walk through it that way to help them see it. sinners. So, so by God's grace, we started. Um, I got a phone call. There was a there was this little Baptist church about twenty five miles below our ranch, and it was kind of centered in the valley. And there was a, just a mean. Uh, he was a bar. He was the town barber, but he was also the town pastor. And he was the meanest, crudest man I'd ever met. And I, to this day, I never thought he was a believer. He preached there for 25 years. He had, like, a couple older people. And, I mean, there's just nobody there. Well, he, he stood in the congregation on the 25th anniversary of him being there. He stood in front of the congregation. I told God that after 25 years, if he hadn't taken me home, I hadn't died, I was quitting. It's 25 years. You're on your own. Grabbed his Bible and walked out the back door. Never said another word to him. And so there's this handful of people, maybe a dozen at most, that were at this church. So I had started the, a church in the north end of the valley where we lived. And um, and we were meeting in this community hall, and we were paying $25 a, a Sunday to have the community hall. And um, and then when the bar, you know the town barbecues on Sunday afternoons came, we had to give it up, you know, and we'd go work at that so we could share the gospel with people. And so they called me. They said uh, there's an older couple in the church still there to this day. I, they're, they're in their late 90s. And I talked to um, the pastor we have in there now. Um, I said, "Is uh, Gene the Cooper still there?" And he said, "Oh yeah, they're still here. We have to go. They can't drive anymore, but we go get them." And um, they were a godly older couple. They're the only ones I think were believers besides one widow that was in the rest of the people weren't believers so they said will you come pastor this church and i said well we got something going up here we got a, a couple of families coming up here they said we don't we you can do anything you want with us i said can i throw your constitution out <laughs> <laughs> can i rewrite everything um that i think is biblical um i'll certainly walk you through it as i do it and they said you the keys are yours so I went and met with our little group and said this is an opportunity. So we come down. We this little building is typical. You see them in um, old uh, calendars. The white church with a steeple on it. Um, it was built in 1864. It's a pattern that is built all across the America. Yeah. Uh, built on a pile of rocks, no foundation, no running water um, in it. The original windows are in it. So you look at the windows. There they sag. You know, if you see old glass, you ever seen old glass that mm-hmm. sags? You couldn't even see out the windows. Um, so they gave us the keys to this building, and it had a parsonage next to it, a house. And um, 
so we converted the house into a little fellowship hall, knocked out some walls. I made an office in there and another room for Sunday school room so Gina could teach the little kids, which were ours because <laughs> there was nobody else coming. <laughs> and uh, this is this is how it all got started. Um, it, it, this is how we got started. And now once I got in there, now people in the community go, you know that that preaching cowboy, he's got a church now. He's in Lake City. So that word got out. So people would come by. A lot of people preaching. I can see them drive by. Yeah. What's going on in there, you know? And uh, we'd ring the bell. They had a big bell tower. ring the bell and um, have Sunday school. And you know, we started with a handful of people. And we just kept preaching. We just kept preaching and loving people and walking around the neighborhood, sharing Christ with people. And we had some real breakthroughs. Um, we had a man who was really well-known. His name was Jeff Davis. And he, um, he was the manager of a very large ranch called... White Pines Ranch, I think was the name of it. Uh, and um, he had gone through some really hard things, almost died. And somehow I, he knew me. I had never ridden for him. Well, he came to talk to me. And God just saved him. Just saved him on the spot. Just, I mean. He goes home, leads his wife to Christ. <laughs> they start coming. Now other people start coming. Now the church start to fill up. Kim and Ken, uh, uh, a guy named Kim, and his wife was Candy, lived next door to these first converts, Jeff and uh, Pam, who, who uh, she's died now. But um, they started witnessing them. Well, they're going to have a divorce. This couple's going to have a divorce. They're Kim and Candy date. Uh, Kim and Candy, not Davis. Uh, Kim and Candy. I can't remember that. Love them to death. They're going to have a divorce. So, so. Jeff's wife goes over and said, they're very good friends with him. Look, we've helped you with your ranch. We've done everything. We've watched your kids. We've done everything. You know, will you do us one favor before you sign the papers that were on the kitchen table to finalize their divorce? Now, let me give you a little background. Kim had been divorced four times. This was his fifth marriage. She had been divorced three times. This was her fourth marriage. You can't believe the collateral damage in these two people's life. So... She says this. She said, if you love me, you'll go talk to my pastor. I don't know all this is going on. All we had is a cell phone with a bag phone. Remember the bag bag phones? That's all we had on our ranch because there was no phones in the valley out that far. So I get a call on it. And they're always like, how much is it going to cost me every time it rains? Yes, um, <laughs> it's very expensive. And, and this sweet sister says, hey, uh, pastor, um, I did something. <laughs> Uh, my neighbors, they're Kim and Candy. You might have met them. I actually knew who they were. Um, he drove. He owned the local propane company that, and they had a ranch. But he he filled everybody's propane tanks. I knew who he was. And I said, he said, well, this is what I did. And and I told them. And they promised they wouldn't sign the papers until they came and met with you. I actually made the appointment next Monday <laughs> at six at the church. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm telling you, this is missions, guys, because you gotta you got to get into the culture and share the gospel. So I have this little office, this little teeny office, and this little parsonage over here. And, and I, you know, my pickup's out there, and I'm in there to meet him at 6. And, um, and two cars come in, and they park, you know, you kind of, they line to look at each other, you know, and they get out. They walk and there's a little gate in there, like they can barely get through the gate. They don't. They're not living. He's like he's living in town somewhere in some 
buddy's garage, you know, and she's at the ranch house, and and they and they don't even talk to, they don't even look at each other. I had set the chairs like nice and close together for them to sit at. They came in and moved them. <laughs> and I mean, I remember going like they had the top. I was like where Brandon is in this chair over here. I was like, they couldn't get any farther away in my office. And I said, oh Lord, where do you start? You know, and they told me their history of their lives. They also had been in every religion possible. They had tried every religion. So, I mean, everything. And stuff like Seventh Day as well. So they had a sprinkle of this just deadly view of who God is and and all that stuff. I said, what am I going to do, God? I'm going to tell them about Jesus. <laughs> and so I just started. I didn't even ask him any more questions. I just said, I want to tell you about someone who will change your life. And they really started talking chronologically of who Jesus was and the promise that God said was going to send them because we're sinners. Would you agree you're a sinner? And they agreed they were sinners. So we got done. I was probably spending an hour and a half just preaching at them. And I'm young. I'm 27 years old probably. And uh, I said, I'd like to meet with you next Monday. I'm going to have an appointment here. Well, you know, we've got the papers. And and I said, I will be here at 6 next Monday, and I'll be waiting for you. Well, don't count on us. And, you know, we got to sign these papers. And, and I said, I'll be here at 6. They left. <laughs> I showed back up next Monday. He's like, God, what am I doing here? They're never coming back. <laughs> I'm in my office looking out this window. Here they come. Two cars. Pull in. They get out. Walk, you know, try to get through the gate together, and you know they just hate each other. They're just pure hatred for each other. Come in the office, set the chairs up, spread them out again, start all over, you know, back into Christ for an hour and a half, walking through his life, taking him to passages, reading him of how he loved people and cared for people and healed people, and how he spent time with people, and then how he died for them. Say, so, yeah, I'm going to be back here Monday. Next six, and I'm going to be waiting for you. Well, Pastor, you know this has been two times, and you know we're, we think we're going to just need to sign those papers, and yeah, and and, and I said, well, I'll be here, and off they go. Monday, I come back. Gina, go. Are you really going back there again? I go. I told them I was, so I go back there, sit down, set the chairs up. Here they come again. They pull in. We did this for six weeks. Wow. Six weeks. At that point, you're through Revelation. (laughs) I mean, I'm running out of stories about Jesus. (laughs) Tell them. So, they six weeks go by. At the end of six weeks, they're still got stairs. Six weeks, they spread the chairs out again. So that time, MacArthur had come out with his hardback. Um, This is mid '90s. His hardback study Bible, New King James. You remember that one that came out? So I had, I had, we had bought stacks of those and we were giving them to people, you know, to come to the church. And I, I marked main verses in them with little sticky notes like this you know, that I wanted them to go and read. And I said, I've given you six weeks of my life because I love you and I love the Savior who can change your life. And so in these Bibles, there's, there's marks. And these are the verses I want you. I want you to go home and read these independent. I want you to read them by yourself. They didn't live together at this time. Read these. And then if you believe what it says, you you just obey it. They're like, what does that mean? I said, trust me. Just read these. I, mean, I got Romans Roads in there. I got, I mean, I got all the great passages in Scripture. These people have never looked at a Bible before. They looked at every other religion there was, but they've never been in the Bible. 
So they go, well, pastor, you know. <laughs> but I could see there was somewhat a softening. I could, I was, it was small, and most people wouldn't have seen it. But I, I, I they kept said, coming back. They kept coming. I mean, that's, that alone. That's that's was, what I'm saying. I thought, Lord, if this is just dirty trick and wasting my time, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so they leave, and um, I said, I'll see you here next week. Now we're going on the seventh week. I'll be here six o'clock, and they, him and Odd, and out they went with their new Bibles. They get out, and they get in their cars, and they drive off. I pray. Man, I pray all week. I, I beg God. And Gene is begging God. And their friends, their neighbors are begging God that he would save them. They come back. Next Monday, I'm sitting there, and I can see out my office. One car drives in. And they both get out of it. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> Except they put him close. <laughs> Yeah, They're holding hands. Wow. Walking in up the steps. They get in. Don't move the chairs. For the first time in seven sessions, they sit next to the chairs next to each other. And they said, Pastor, before you get going, we need to tell you what, what happened in our lives. We went home, and to the best of our knowledge, seven days ago, we must have simultaneously, in our different spots, opened those Bibles and began to read. And as we've talked since then, we realized we must have fell on our knees in, at almost identical times and begged God to save us. Changed my life forever, guys. <laughs> this God really saves people. I'm telling you... You need a break for tears. I'm telling you, it was the most amazing thing this young pastor could ever see God do. He rescued these people from certain destruction. They fell in love with each other. They began to share the gospel with everybody in the valley. Their lives were living testimonies. Every time the door of the church was open, they were there. They begged me to start a home group in their, in their house because they wanted to invite everybody they knew in it. It was amazing. Later, I mean, five, six years later, Kim becomes the treasurer of our church, takes care of that, and he was running our diaconate type thing and was moving towards eldership. Um, it was just an amazing thing what God had done. They were completely different people. God had done a miracle. And um, now I did a lot of things wrong, <laughs> you know, because I, I, you know, I remember they stood in front of the church at their baptism. I'll never forget this. They said, we came to Pastor Scott and he talked to us for six weeks about Jesus and never mentioned the word marriage. <laughs> we had saw it, we had told, we had told our neighbor we would go for marriage counseling, and this guy never talked to us for six weeks about marriage. All he talked about was Jesus. And um, that was one of the sweetest baptisms in the world to baptize those two together. And uh, no, no false conversion, full out. When, when, as soon as we had moved away, they had a family that uh, their his dad or something had a business in Oregon, and they died and had to move up there for a couple years. They said, "Will you find us a church?" I found him a church up there. That pastor called me and says, "Nobody's ever sent me anybody like that before." And they served there for a couple years. They got all that done and went back to the church and still serve in that church to this day. That original church that got saved in. So, uh, I mean, that's that. I mean. That's missions, and, and, and it, it really is. And that's what all this stuff 
is about, and as good as I really do love this material, because if you're going to send someone to the mission, if your church wants to be a sending church, you've got to have stuff like that, and that's why I'm preparing this for you. But that was the joy of watching God save people, save people that you just couldn't imagine. Um, probably the next one, which was the most astounding thing, I, I mean, remember, I'm, tw- I'm in my 20s, late 20s. I, I, I have a Bible degree. <laughs> from a, 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 not a very good Bible college <laughs> that didn't like Dr. MacArthur, <laughs> whom I loved. <laughs> but it was the only place in the area. There was no other per, per globe to get education. You know, so that's all I have. I've not been to seminary. I don't know my languages. I don't know anything. I just know this Bible. I read it every day as long as I could read it. Um, so <clears throat> we get the director, the head of BLM, Bureau of Land Management. If you didn't have a ranch, you worked for the government. Those are only really the two employments. Forest Service and Bill M was there. They move in. He moves from Oregon somewhere and takes this new post that's in our just probably 20 miles below our church. And they come to church. They were raised in Dr. MacArthur's church, but Dr. MacArthur's dad's church in Oregon. And his dad pastored till in his 90s. Uh, very staunch, very fundamental Baptist church. Um, I'm preaching through the book of James, and it's funny. On a Monday morning, I'm in the office, and um, a car pulls up, and it's his wife, and it's the wife of this couple. And their names are just uh, Owen Billingsley's. Owen and his name was Owen, and her name was Margaret. Owen and Margaret. This was 20 plus years ago. Okay, <laughs> this is way back. Um, and pulls up, and I'm thinking, why is Margaret here? And she comes and says, Pastor, can I talk to you for a minute? I go, yeah, Margaret. Now, this woman headed up our potlucks. I mean, she was serving in the church. She was, you know, whatever. There's something to do. She just gal just served. She's 51 years old. I'm 20, in my 20s. She goes, Pastor, I have to tell you something. I got saved yesterday during your message. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the head of women's ministry in our church. This is, this is the gal that does everything if you need anything done. Once I got up off the floor <laughs> and I looked over my... Did I hear you say that correctly? She goes, I am certain without a doubt that I have been unregenerate my entire life till yesterday at your message. I was preaching on the difference of a, a, a dead faith and a living faith. I entitled the series out of James. And um, we baptized her in their hot tub at their house. Cause, I mean, we, it was either in the creek and the hot tub was a little warmer, so it was nice. So, did a lot of people in the group. With or without vocals. <laughs> um, I remember her mom came and she was so mad at me and she had her, she said, my daughter got saved. I let her to Jesus. You know, I go, shouldn't we be happy that she's now really saved? But she was not from that area and she was elderly. But anyway, um, Margaret gives us testimony. I, the reason I even remember this so much is Kayla, my third born, was baptized at the same time. But here's Margaret. Now she is on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost a month, maybe six weeks to the day, her husband walks into my office, falls on his face in front of my office, my front of my desk. You okay there, Owen? <laughs> Big, tall man, six four, six five. And he goes, Scott, I've been sleeping with a woman. I've been living in adultery for years. Man, everything's going through my mind. God just saved his wife. You know, I'm 27. <laughs> I haven't been to seminary. I don't know how to handle this. He is 
falling apart. You know, it was from a sermon the Sunday before, and I, and and he and I think he was always in the faith. And um, I go, we gotta go tell your wife. And he didn't want to do it. And I said, you can't come into me and tell me this. And I said, I don't know a whole lot, but I can't sleep tonight. And I hope you can't till we go. Now this was after hours of him crying and repenting and all of that. I said, we have to tell her. So we, and it's late now, we drive home and Margaret's at the house and I'm with Owen and she looks at me. Wives know stuff. And uh, Margaret, we are here to tell you something, but it needs to come from the lips of your husband. And he told the whole story and she just melted. You know? I thought, wow, God, talk about test of faith to see if her faith was genuine. And uh, so that was my another big counseling appointment that I had as a young, very young pastor, trying to learn how to how to counsel this. And God healed their marriage miraculously. He fell back into sin again. We disciplined him and put him out of church. Um, and when I left, that was the last thing I had to do was discipline him out of the church. Um, she said, "I'm going to stay with him, but I'm coming to church." <laughs> And she came to church, and then I left, and we installed a new pastor there, and he was able um, to walk him back through. And, the, and now I had four elders that I had trained over 10 years, and they were there, and they handled that and eventually restored them. They moved to Texas. Um, since I've been here, I've been out to Shepherd's Conference a couple times. I think it was the first time I went to Shepherd's when I was here, probably 16 or 17, when I went to Shepherd's. I'm coming out of a food line, run right into Owen Billingsley. And he puts his tray down and throws his arms around me. And he says, Scott, I would not have been here if it was not for you. You stuck with us. You disciplined me when I needed to be disciplined. And God has restored our lives. I have truly become repentant. Um, my wife has forgiven me. We were involved in this church. I knew what church it was in Texas. Um, and it was an amazing story. You know, and that's, I mean, that's not, that's not anything out, out that we don't do as pastors, you know, here. Um, but all of them were very interesting settings and, and you're going into a very interesting setting. It's all, it's all, it's all a very tight knit culture of people, but the gospel goes through it. So Gene and I would never dare to drove a foreign car there. We knew that would be offensive to them. We knew we had to do what they did. So we dressed like them, and I already did when I moved there. I wore, you know, Wranglers and button-down shirt, and I, mean, that's, I, I wore a cowboy hat for 20 years of my life. Probably until I moved here. I mean, I really don't wear them here. It doesn't like go with the new attire. But um, I wore a cowboy hat for m most of my life. I've had a cowboy hat on. That was what, who we were, and our boys were that way. And, 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 and so we did what they did, but we never compromised the message. The only churches were in town were false teachers. There was a Mormon church, a Catholic church, and a United Church of Christ. And this guy was just terrible. Um, that was he was worse than the Mormons and the and the Catholics. Um, that was the only church. It was the only Bible teaching church within two hours, directionally, a circle of two thousand two two hours till you would ever find a church that taught the Bible. And even then, it was sketchy. 
And that's what God did. And that church is still there today, still full of members, still growing. Um, so it's hard. I mean, it's the, no, nothing changes there. We go back there, and we've been gone for 20 years. We go back there. We've been gone there more than 20 years. We go back there, and it's identical. The same ranches, the same barn. There's no new. There's nothing out there. Remember, this is the rules you can imagine. Um, it's two and a half hours to the nearest stoplight. That's my kids didn't. Dad, what's stoplights for? You know, McDonald's was almost three hours away. They didn't know what McDonald's was for the longest time. Um, you know, so so we just immersed ourselves into the culture. And a lot of people, I had people, Christians say, "Well, you just became this cowboy because you want to be a cowboy out there." I said, "Well, look, I mean, my middle name is John Wayne. I mean, I'm looks and I, I I love cowboying, but yeah, we did because we wanted to reach those people. Now you're in Florida." And I golf. It's <laughs> a really joy. <laughs> and uh, but but the message is the same. I don't teach anything different than I taught the ranchers in in uh, Surprise Valley. That was the name of the valley we lived in. That I teach here. The message doesn't change. The culture's different. Way different. <laughs> Extreme differences in that culture than what's here. The message doesn't change. So I come, I come here, and I can step into this culture and, and catch on very quickly because the, co- the gospel culture is driving my motives. Right. So that's how missionaries can do it. Now, was it easy when we, we pulled in here? We shipped all everything, everything we owned, we shipped out here in a truck. And these guys unloaded it and stuck it in Chinese Charlie's house for us. <laughs> and... And we came, and nothing was the same. We didn't know, we didn't understand. We couldn't even pronounce Ormond right. We call it Ormond. Um, uh, we, we didn't know what a pub. We didn't know what a Publix was. The only thing that we recognized was Walmart, and then there were Costco's in um, in Orlando. And Costco's really big out west. That's where we shop for Costco for the ranch. We'd go to Costco, load up for three months of food you know six coolers and you know have fun that day in town you know spend the night shop and then come back because that was what we did so we gene and i would drive over when we first got the most people we would go over to costco regularly just and kind of cry because it would, they would smell the same you know we get a hot dog you know and, okay we're back in this is a very southern people were very different to us oh yeah you know i couldn't tell if they were real i couldn't tell if this was some smoke job or you know or or what it was um you know out west they just tell you what they think of you you know um here they're just like well honey let me get that for you first of all there's only one woman that calls me honey (laughs) you know so it 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 was it was we looked like we were very comfortable probably here but internally we were trying to figure out this culture and figure out if they were going to accept us here and we're coming behind Roy Hargraves 25 years of a very passionate very good preacher who plowed the doctrines of grace in a place where there was nobody else plowing with you you know so um, it was a real challenge, and nobody, most pastors who come in behind long-term pastors, that pastor doesn't make it. He opens the door for the next guy to come in. So that's 90% of them don't make it. So we knew we had our challenges, but we believed God wanted us here. And that's why we talk about calling. We don't send people to the mission field who aren't called there. We're not going to send you there. 
You may have a burden from it, but you got to know God called you there because it's too hard. It's too much adjustment. You leave everything. I remember Gina crying, coming across the United States um, and saying, this is what God wants us to do, right? <laughs> yeah, babe, we've prayed through this. But it was hard. You know, just, it was hard to do that. So I remember the search committee looking for you going <clears throat> through that whole process because all the pastors were yeah. preaching for that. I remember they were, we found this guy. He's a cowboy preacher. The first picture they see of us is in our camo. Because yeah. <laughs> my boys, we took a hunting That's picture. That's the one they said in front of the church for the camo. Out of all the pictures you put up of us, that one. Yeah. <laughs> so. We would watch videos of you in California in my house. We're like, we got to see what he's doing. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I so much of, I think, the if you want to call it success that we've had in integrating into Riverbend has been that missional work we did. It really taught us to listen good to people, hear them, try to understand where they're from. You know, and again, you got all you got people who hate Roy and hate people who love Roy, and then everything in between. And everybody wants your ear to tell you about it when you get here. And everybody wants to tell you how bad the youth program is, and they don't do missions, and they don't do this. And I mean, and then most of those people left within a year, and uh, caused all kinds of problems and leave. There's always a silent split that happens, and so. But we've been through hard things. We've been through, I had a potential elder in that church I was telling you about, and he was moving along, and then there became an issue between him and his wife we've discovered. And I said, his name was Todd McGiffin, and I said, Todd, we need to slow down the eldership process. We need to figure out what's going on with you and your wife. She's, there's just some struggles there. Man, they blew up and tried to split. Our little church, what was so little, a split would have been like, that ruined us. And, uh, you know, so I had to go through those things, and God taught me so many difficult things. And, of course, the church we came from went through a lot of hardship, very difficult things. And so to come in to Riverbend in a church this size, um, its history, it took, I think it took someone who understood a mission field. Because Gene and I came in, I said, honey, we look at this no different. That's our mission field. And there's some going to go, well, when they're going to be, some of the natives are going to run with us and won't want us, and some of us, some of them are going to want to get rid of us. And, um, but we're going to preach Christ. And that's what we did. And uh, uh, it was hard. It was, the first couple of years were hard here. Um, a lot of things went on behind the scenes that I'll never tell you. <laughs> but, but they were hard. And, uh, but we, we kept focus and had a plan. And so when I read this stuff, and re- some of this has been written, and then some of this is my thoughts that are interjected in between these things. Um, I, I really like this. It makes me, and I tell you the truth, there's still this hit of mission work still in me. I mean, I, 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 if God called me to go somewhere, Gina and I would pick up and leave. We, we have that in us. Um, and I think that got ingrained in us from our mentors because they cared about people groups that nobody else would go to. And even in some of this material, there's some as we get farther, we may not get to it now because I've gone on to you know, story hour here, <laughs> thanks to Chris. Um, uh, this is, I want to hear the Mrs. Girl. I do interviews for a living. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, this one's recorded, Dale, yeah, apparently. Um, so, um, I don't know, I lost my thought. I lost my train of thought. Um, so when, when you see materials, I, I read a lot of missions book, and a lot of them say to focus in on cities because that's your biggest chance you're going to have from um, indigenous people coming from other 
other places are going to come into cities because there's work there, there's housing and stuff like that. A lot of them talk about that. You'll, very, you'll find very few mission books that ever talk about going to the rural areas. They're the forgotten mission field of America. They're, they are the worst unchurched, the worst theology is out there. What goes out there is the Seventh Day and the Jehovah Witnesses and them, and they attack those people out there. And, and they are every little town across, scattered across the West. You will find Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, and Seventh Day. And I'm ta- talking the few Seventh Dayers who believe that salvation comes from grace. Those are few. Most of them are hardened, law-keeping, plus Christ. And they, they go in there. But the church has forgot it. And the reason is, is there's, there's not enough money out there. So you start these churches, they'll never be able to be self-sufficient in a lot of ways. You, they can't. There's not 100 people there. to, to yeah. And if you got 100 people, they're not wealthy. So they can't support. So we had to, that's what made us missionaries is we had to raise our support to go there. And then we had to teach people who had never given before how to give. And that takes time. And now they, are, they the, the missionary pastor that's in there now, he raises, whom Gina and I personally support, um, he raises about half of his income and they, they are now giving enough to cover the other half. Um, but that's, that's mission work in America. I mean, time does not have to tell you the stories of getting on Indian reservations and some of the demonic stuff I ran into there. I mean, unbelievable. Do a vacation school, Bible school, basketball school type of thing. We do Bible, we do, how do we call it? We called it basketball VBS camp or something like that because Indians love basketball. I don't know why every Indian reservation is a gym. They love playing basketball. So, you know, playing college ball, I can get in there. And so I, the way I got in on those is they had an open gym and they only let so many white guys in. And me being a preacher, they knew who I was and and they let me come play. And it was, you know, you know the word tomahawk. It was literally, I'd drive a lane and they would cream you. And if you call foul, they'd fight you. So you go, oh, well, yeah, okay, good, good play. And you limp down the court, you know, and keep your mouth shut, keep playing. And, but I was good, and I could still play really well and shoot really well. So they began to let me play in their Indian tournaments because they're going to have one token white guy on each team. And so I would be the token white guy. So I'm playing on these. Now I'm playing on their team. So once we played and won some tournaments, then I went to the council, and I said, I would like to do a, a basketball VBS camp for your kids, and we'll teach them basketball skills but we'll teach them the Bible, what the Bible says about life and death and, and Jesus. And, and uh, I'm straight up with you, this is what I would do, but we need you to let us use that gym. You had to get through the council, which was certainly these families that would rule and there's all kinds of fighting going on. Well, they finally agreed. First VBS I do, I have 20 kids, five of them are metal retarded. They're pregnant from a brother raping a sister. That's where the, it, the inbreeding, that's how bad it is. The, Americans' Indian reservations are the epitome of wealth, the welfare system. It is some of the most demonic stuff I've ever seen in my life. I, would, I never took my wife or children on an Indian reservation in 10 years. I would drive through in the car, but I would never let them minister with me. I, I, I was too scared of stuff that would go on. Their kids would tell you things just scary to death. Most of the parents were all in jail. Um, uh, grandparents raised all the kids on the Indian reservation. 
So year after year, we did this basketball camp, and they loved us. And when I finally moved away, they gave us a dinner. They honored us in an Indian dinner that we, the work we had done there. And um, one man said, there has never been a white man honored on this reservation like they honored you. And uh, and they put on this big potluck dinner for us and everything, and that was one of our last. But, but out of it all, we only had two families that we think, one for sure, the other one probably saved, that came to our church. Of 10 years of work. Most of them all died, and they all had STDs. And a lot of suicide. A lot suicide, of suicide, suicide rate was just off the hook. It is. It's really yeah. crazy. So, what's the law with uh, like the government? So, state law versus yeah. So it's the Bureau of Indian Affairs controls that, and law normal everyday law enforcement can't go onto the reservation unless they're more than two hundred miles away from state police. So, where we were, there was of course we were a long ways from state police. So the local sheriff had jurisdiction he could go on there but he would actually have to get back up to go on there because they have nothing to live for so they'll shoot you and uh so it, I mean, it was rough i mean it was it was rough <laughs> um rough rough missions and uh but that's how i got on the res- reservation was i go these people like basketball i could shoot the daylights out you know <laughs> the three-point line was my place and and that got me in. And then I called my brother Don. I said, Don was a college coach. And I said, will you bring up some of your college players and don't ask them to donate a week. And we'll live on the ranch and we'll, I got a bunch of hay that needs to be bucked too after we get done in the morning. With, you know. And, and, uh, but I promise I'll minister to your athletes as well, but have them come up and help us do this. And Don would bring up a van load of six, seven guys, you know, these big old guys. And, and a lot of them had never seen a black person before in that world. That's They've never seen a black person live when not on TV, you know. So Don would bring up these athletes that were Christians, and and uh, Don would run the basketball camp, and I would teach the Bible, and we did it year after year after year. That was the way we got into the culture, so we could share the gospel. Then uh, who knows what the fruit of that is? That one Indian family that you said you're sure is saved. I mean, they're still they're still at the church. They're still at the church. The other the other one moved away from what I've heard. Um, the one couple that um, I think are still at the church, they raised their kids, and when their kids graduated from high school, they kicked them off the Indian reservation. They said, you are never allowed to come back here again. This America has paid for your schooling. You go to a state school, Indians can go to a state school. Native Americans go to a state school, it's paid for. So Chico State, San Jose State, state schools, it's completely paid for. He said, they've paid for everything for you. You have no excuse. If you stay on this reservation, I will disown you. That's how he talked to his kids. Set them up. Two of them were VPs of, of businesses later. One was an artist. The gal was a phenomenal artist. Has her own own gallery, I think, in New York now. I mean, they just he kicked them off. He said, Scott, sin is so bad here. This is the center of hell, he would tell me. It says, everything wicked comes through the gates of this reservation. I would not let my children stay here. And um, he, was, he, was, he was a godly man. You know, he, he was simple in understanding his Bible. You know, remember, they all have an Indian faith to them. Their ancestors are in everything. God's, God is in the sun, the trees, and all of that. They have their own religion. 
So you you would have to you have to hear them out, and they would tell you they're false religion, you know. But they had no way of dealing with sin, and you could bring them to their sin real easy, uh, and and say, how is the God of the Son gonna forgive your sins? And what's gonna happen when you die? You know, what's a spirit life? You know, you go up to their burial grounds. I mean, I, I couldn't go into them, but I could go up to them. And they would show me and. Um, you know, it's scary demonic, scary demonic stuff, man. And uh, But praise God, he gave me an opportunity there for many years. Uh, we shared the gospel. We know that several families come to know the Lord. And who knows all those kids? We share the gospel with, over the years, hundreds of kids. I have no idea where they're at. Probably most are in jail. Um, but who knows what happened there. So that's missions, and that's that's what we did for 10 years. And then... And then I couldn't stand it. I had been teaching for 10 years the Bible without knowing Greek and Hebrew. And it doesn't mean I couldn't have gone on, but at the level and probably the giftedness God had given me, I was too hungry. I was too hungry. And so I'll never forget the day I stood in the pulpit and told the church that I was going to leave. It was one of the hardest days in our life because we loved them. We we had led most of the church to the Lord personally. And uh, they were... You know, they were our disciples as we led them to Christ. And that was a terribly hard day. Because everything in us loved that lifestyle. We would still be there to this day. But I couldn't solve it. There was nothing online. Online wasn't even around. The internet just came out. (laughs) Not far. It was all dial up. You know, I go to school on that. I haven't gotten an email in six weeks. Is there a problem? Right. So. I mean, it, it was just impossible. And so I, I applied to master's long before I told them. I had applied to master's two years before that. And master's accepted me. In fact, I'd been on Shepherd Conference since it was in the chapel, you know, way back when it was small. And um, and I would talk to those guys when I was down there. And I said, I just don't, you know, my, I don't know how to leave my ministry. I don't know how to do this, how to come down. It was four days a week. Master's is Monday through Thursday, I think it runs. Or Tuesday through Friday. Tuesday through Friday, I think it is. Uh, four days. I mean, you got to live there and work, and you got to do all that. You know, we're we're living on. I mean, my nearest neighbor, you have to use binoculars. <laughs> He's seven miles away <laughs> to see whether they're home or not. Yeah, let's take their pickups there. You know, I, we're going to move our family into downtown Los Angeles. Right. I mean, it was huge, but we were willing to do it. So every time they approved it and said yes, come. In fact, the second I couldn't tell that we. So we put the sale ranch. We finally told the church we're going. We put the ranch up for sale. Couldn't sell it. Who's going to buy a ranch? It's so far out there. People have got out that would come to help us and serve in the ministry. They said, this is the end of the world. They go, no, but you can see it from here. Because <laughs> they, they drive and drive and drive. And go, We've been driving for 10 hours. And all we've seen is sagebrush. <laughs> and then we come to you. <laughs> it was that remote. My wife, I mean, she cried when I took her there. And she cried when we moved. She fell in love with that. We had all our boys there. And they were raised on the ranch. And she homeschooled, learned out she was a teacher, but there was nowhere to send your kids to school, so we we became homeschool early on, you know, when homeschool was like weirdos or you know. But no I mean, our, our parents would go, Your kids your kids are gonna be socially not. I remember saying, So what do you want them to be like? Thieves and liars and evolutionists and all those other things, you know, we kinda you know, so I think we're gonna be okay. We know our Bibles and Gina's a teacher and so so we survived it. But that was just life. That was life on the mission field. And when we finally told the church it was hard, and the, and masters had accepted us, but we couldn't sell the ranch, and so we couldn't go. So the next year came around, 
and they accepted us again and they said look scott we know who you are and um your reputation precedes you we would like you to go to school here we're going to pay for your schooling and have you teach at the same time we're going to have you teach classes on shepherding in our pastoral classes and i said oh man this is great rick oliver was the academic dean at the time and he's kind of MacArthur's right-hand guy at that time. And, and I said, oh, man, I'd love to do that. I love shepherding. God's taught me so much out here. And, uh, well, but just pray our answer. So ranch doesn't sell. <laughs> Next year comes around. I go, Scott, we gotta, you coming or not? We got to give up your spot. You know, and I said, give it up. I can't come. And uh, so two years we had told the church we were leaving, but we didn't, you know, because we couldn't go. Well, that's when Tony Sinelli, y'all, you remember Tony, who'd come my friend from, that he was our sending church. Tony called me and says, hey, there's this guy named Steve Fernandez. He's over in V-Town, Vallejo. It's in the heart of the gangster world out of the San Francisco Bay Area. Rough, rough area. Um, and uh, Steve is threatening to start a, start a seminary. And uh, he's in our camp. And uh, he, he's heard about you. In fact, when you preached at our church, his associate pastor, who is now the head pastor there because Steve passed away he said he was on vacation he on he was taking some took a Sunday off and he was there at our church and heard you preach and told Steve about it uh, Steve wants to talk to you alright have him call me so I get this call from Steve he was Steve made John Piper look tired <laughs> when he preached and this guy was the most passionate Christ-centered man I'd ever met he gave me a desire for missions he taught me the glory of God that lesson you heard last week that's Steve right from Edwards type thing. So Steve calls me and goes, hey, I'm Steve Fernandez. I knew who he was. I'd read his book on election. He had a little pamphlet out that was just excellent election and just helped me learn to articulate it better. And I said, I know who you are, Steve. And he goes, well, I've heard about you. And I heard you can preach. He goes, we're starting a seminary and I want you to help me. And I want you to help me get it going. I want you to attend it. And I said, well, Steve, that sounds great. And I'm all in and this whole you know, MacArthur thing hasn't worked out, so maybe this is God doing, but we still have one huge problem. I own a huge ranch. <laughs> it's full of cattle and equipment, and all that has to sell, and it's a recession, <laughs> and nobody's buying. And he says, this would be Steve, well, we're going to pray. <laughs> and we're going to get on our faces before God, and, and, and we're going to plead with him to be glorified by selling your ranch. Now, I wasn't at that level that I'm at like today. I'm going, okay. Steve starts praying on the phone like I've never heard anybody pray in my life. And I'm telling you, I wept as this man called on God to be glorified and magnified at the sale of Scott Menezes Ranch so he can come help us do this work that you've called us to do here. I'm just, I don't know what I do. I was just like, he's there, you're there? I go, I think so. <laughs> you know, I'd never even seen him before. I don't, I don't even know what the guy looks like, and I'm on the phone with him. Our ranch sells in two months. Wow. In fact, the next week the buyer came, started looking at it, came back within a month, paid cash for it. Wow. We were, that was in June. We, were, we moved uh, September 1st. What year is this? This is um, 2002. <coughs> 2002, I think. We'd been we'd been in Fort Biddle for over 10 years. There, we planted the church. Was healthy. Had four elders. Um, had an outreach to 200 mile spread from all those Bible studies that I did. 
that had reached all of that. And um, oh, that was a sad day. We drove off. We we actually lo- we loaded um, a stock trailer with the last load. We went to church. Gina was driving one pickup, and I was driving another pickup on a stock trailer just full of the last things. And we stayed at church, and I preached my last sermon. And then they had this big meal for us, and we said goodbye to them and, and drove off. And uh, went down, went, moved down closer to the seminary. We're still about two and a half hours, or three hours away from the seminary. And um, I started meeting with, with Steve and a couple other brothers. And then Steve said, hey, there's this guy. He He's the understudy to Dr. Who's the guy that died recently? Was the head of uh, languages at Masters, Doctor? Um, not Barrick. No, not Barrick. He's the. Uh, I'll think of him in a minute. I mean, <coughs> renowned, renowned <laughs> in languages and theology. He's his understudy and teaches most of his classes now. He says, "I think you come and be our academic dean." So um, I said, "Well." I don't know him, but man, if he's part of MacArthur's outfit, he's probably pretty good. And so Steve goes down and flies down and talks to him, and then he gets Steve and brings him back. And I have a little ranch. We bought another little ranch because we had some cows we kept and horses. And he brought him to our house, and I gathered all these pastors from the area up there that would think about supporting the start of the seminary. And, and that's when I first day met Brian. He walked into my house in Cottonwood, California, and uh, Brian and I just clicked. And uh, he says, well, what's your goal? I said... I'm here to help get this thing started so I can go. He goes, man, everybody's heard you preach, and you have never been to seminary? I said, no. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, I said, I, yeah, I, I said, I want to start this so I can go. And that's how it all got started. That's how Brian and I's relationship started. He was my teacher, taught me <clears throat> Greek and Hebrew, and he taught tons of classes those first year because we didn't have very many teachers. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, hey. and as we grew, more guys got on board, and, and but that's how Brian came into the picture. And so, But that's, I mean, that's just itself. That's a, that's a seminary plant. And the same thing happened here. We begged God. God, you gave us money. You seem to be wanting us to do this. So you go... All right, here we go, Lord. <laughs> you know, now we're doing it with the Bible College. Tell him how he met up with Brian again. So, so Brian, after pre- teaching us all of us preachers, because the first set that goes through is all guys like me. We're already pastoring. We're already preaching. I'm I'm already doing overseas missions. I'm preaching in places around the world. All of the seven guys, outside of maybe one, maybe two, are are senior or you know teaching pastors. The rest of them are working in ministry. So we're all older guys. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the middle-aged guys. There's guys, three guys older than me that graduate in our first class. And so Brian's teaching all these preachers. And that guy gets so excited about preaching, it feels he gets called back into it. So him and Ken Fuller, who he knew from working in the Honduras ministry, Ken's got a church here in Tampa and says, would you come pastor it? So he comes to our board meeting. And by then I've graduated and I'm sitting on the board. And I'm, I'm a board member and teaching at the school. And Brian, I'll never forget, comes in. He goes, I think God's calling me to Florida to go pastor this church. You know, he's our academic dean, you know, and everything's running by this guy. And we go, okay, uh, all right, got to figure out how to replace you. <laughs> and uh, so we blessed him and sent him off, and he moved here. And we, we got another academic dean. He was with us for a few years, and uh, now we have a really good one out there. But the next guy struggled a little bit to fill Brian's shoes. But... Um, so then I, yeah, yeah. yeah. everyone's going. I mean, you mean poor the guy. It was a, t- it was a tough follow up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And Brian had like not had any of his seizures or epilepsy. Um, uh, Brian's really sharp, but I'm probably the only one who knows Brian before that. Um, he, I mean, he could stand with anybody on the planet, theologically, and with clarity. He, you know, he's, he's he gets tired now. You see, you see a little bit of the effects of it. He's still great. No, no, no problems there. So Brian comes out here, and he's pastoring a church in Tampa. And then I call him, and I go, Brian, I, this hasn't come all the way closed yet, but I think God's calling us to Florida. And uh, I'm involved with the church at Riverbend. He goes, I've been to Riverbend. They hosted a Founders Conference there, and I've been here. And Al Mohler spoke at it and all that. So he knew the church, and so we talked about it. He said, yeah, let me get you information. He so he got me some information on Roy and different things are going on, so I'm trying to gather what, what's going on out here. So anyway, when I get here, we settle in. I go, why don't you and Meyer come over on a Sunday after church and spend, you know, a day or two with us? Because he told us, hey, man, I need some prayers. I'm tired. And so he comes over, and they start pouring their heart out what they're in. They're in a difficult situation over there. And um, and I'm I'm doing what he did with me years before. Like, stay in there, Brian. God's a calling. You know, you know, buck up. You know, go preach the word. Christ will change everything, you know. And he's just suffering over there because that whole thing's coming undone over there. And and I'm thinking, God, if you give him to me, <laughs> I will be very, very grateful. Because <laughs> yeah. I know there's no way I'm doing this seminary with trying to come in behind Roy's shoes and all the issues that I had going on and going to eldership and all of that. I mean, we, we were full load here trying to make that change. And so Brian went back and he called me. He goes, Scott, things are better. Thanks for the, the counsel and encouragement. We're, we're going to be okay. And I go, Good. Well, that's what God wants. And I'm thinking, who am I going to get to run the <laughs> seminary? <laughs> and then, you know, it kept, then it fell apart again. And he, one day he called me. This isn't a lot of meetings. Um, one day he called me, Scott, I think I'm done. I, I, I don't think there's any way forward. There, we are so apart on the gospel lifestyle and how you live the gospel. And, and I said, Brian... I'm sad and hurt any time this happens. But can I tell you something else? <laughs> We're starting a seminary over here. <laughs> I mean, immediately he perked up. And I said, Brian, I will take you as soon as you can get here. And uh, I said, I need help. We're moving to eldership. I need somebody who can write. I'm teaching on it, but I need help writing this. I need to get it down. I can't do it all. And the guys don't under, they, they believe it. They see it in the Bible, but they're not ready to write it. And I said, I got to have somebody to go through this with. And so that's why Brian came. And he, the first thing he did is help me with the eldership. He wrote a lot. We'd sit for hours in my office talking through what that document needed to look like. And then I'd go preach. I'd preach, 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 preach. I preached for a year, and Jerry said, Scott, I think they're ready. Good, we're going another year. Because <laughs> I've already been kicked in the teeth too many times trying to get eldership through churches. And uh, so we went around another year, and that really allowed Brian to really write the bylaws, and him and I start working through it, and then start to introduce him to some of the guys we thought were going to go on to be pastors and elders with us, Jerry's and stuff like that, and Rick's, and, and introduce that to them. And all along, teaching them, every elders, every elders meeting, I was taking them through elder training. Um, and here we are today with nine elders and seven deacons, and and looking for more um, so all right let's take a short break we're gonna just i'm gonna give you the overview of these notes and uh um, and maybe we'll jump on them next okay hang on we're gonna pause you there so here we kind of get into the difference of some of the philosophies and principles of it donald McGavran, i don't know if you've ever heard this guy said people re 
prefer to mix with people like themselves, people who have some same culture. So we should have separate churches for each culture, that is, for each people group. Now, uh, you can kind of read through this, but let me, let me tell you why this doesn't work. <laughs> because it's not how God intended it. <laughs> I, I don't know why they get into these things. Um, you ma- <laughs> Just, let me give you two words, cowboys and Indians. <laughs> and they were both in our church. Mm. Let me give you a more difficult word. Ranchers in government. When you said that, I thought, ooh. They were in our church together. And so Christ, all in one culture in Christ, is what God intended. And, and, and even as we see the church birth, it is a mixture heavy of Jews at first. But then the call goes out to the Gentiles. Both Peter and Paul begin to see the Spirit claiming souls within the Gentiles have to come back, convince the councils of Jerusalem and Antioch that God is saving people. And this culture begins to be mixed together, but all in one in Christ. And that's why Paul writes the great passage in Galatians 3.28 there, where he says, you know, we're all, we're all equal in Christ. Um, and, and that's what we do now. We, do, we don't have a church to the seniors. We don't have a church to the young people. There are people that do it, and it's disastrous. It, it, it's so disastrous that they'll do this. Even they'll have a service, what they call conservative service or something, or traditional, and, a con, and then oh, they'll have a contemporary one. What are you doing? (laughs) You just divided the church more. The old people need to love the younger people enough to sing some of the newer music and learn from that truth. And the younger people need to see the value of people who have been in the ministry for a long and appreciate the depth of the hymns. Yes, I did, didn't I? And, and, and when when you teach this stuff and you teach Christ is all in all, you put them all together. Because if we're going to be every tribe, tongue, and nation of people in heaven, shouldn't we start now? And so the church should have wealthy and poor people in it. And they should love one another. There should be economic differences within the church. That's that God uses all of those situations to make himself glorious, to make people depend on him, all of those things. But missions, this is the dumb stuff missions done for a long time. And it just doesn't work. Now, the only reason we separate would be what? Doctrine. No, not even that doctrine. We got a fixed doctrine. We don't let doctrine separate us. We fix it. It's now say we all believe the same thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we all believe the same thing. I'm sorry, was, we have the same doctrine. Like what would be the one but... thing from keeping us to being able to be together? So there's something amazing that happened at, at Acts two. Language. Yeah. So there are times we have. A language difference so so we may have a Spanish service now our Spanish service we had out west was for true Spanish-speaking people we had a lot of them and they were usually older because the younger folks learned English when they came but their parents did not mm-hmm. so so we would ha- we'll have a service where they could hear it in their own language um, that's that's I mean that's it other than that we should be mixing these groups together because God Desires that, and you'll see he. Um, this this material came from another guy on this particular thing, but I've lived this stuff out. You can see the differences. As people prefer to be with one of their own type of people. We must learn to love all types of people, <laughs> right? 
if you have a church just of old people, guess what? They're not going to like young people. Their music's too loud. They don't vote the way we vote. I mean, they go on and on and on. Put them together. Let them love one another. Let them see that God sent his son to die and shed his blood for those 20-somethings. And we begin to love one another. And this, there are just great differences here. We will always be different from one another. We will always be one in Christ. I mean, uh, avoid any possible risk of social or cultural offense. Learn that love covers many offenses, you know, many sins, right? Um, so there's so just a good comparison here of this idea. Now you drop down to the bottom of that page. I wonder if this got cut off. No, it didn't. Um, launching a, a proclamation and mission of holistic or humanitarian type missions. So, yeah, so this is where missions has gone so often. And it doesn't take hard. I won't say any churches around here, but go on their website and look at their missions. Many of them, what you'll see is humanitarian aid is what it should say. Um, and, and it's always, if we go dig the wells for them, you know, remember the guy was doing the concert, if you buy a pair of shoes, we'll take a well, you know. Why don't you just go preach the gospel and quit ruining their lifestyle over there? Because all these shoes you're giving away is putting their shoe their shoe factories out of business over there. You know, remember Tom's? Remember when Tom's came out? Yeah. They're still around. And, and they would every pair of shoes you buy, they would give to some. You know, you know how many places they put out of business over in the third world because of that? Church members' business because they're giving shoes. Why don't you just take that money and give it to something that's going to propagate the gospel you know so we do all kinds of dumb things and the church gets into that thinks that's a real great thing well yeah you just put half the church out of business in honduras that was their livelihood because you think you're trying to rescue them and help them humanitarian wise our goal is to preach the gospel so launching a mission to a new era or people group there are two possible ways we might start proclaiming the, the gospel message how about that urge people to believe in jesus we could call this a proclamation ministry. Meet some practical needs. Provide water, it's okay. Food, education, medicines. A lot of our missionaries, we send stuff down to give school supplies. The kids come to church, they hear a gospel message, they get, to get their school supplies, right? We get involved in Sunday school and outreaches and showing them the love of God. We could call this holistic or humanitarian mission. Here is a summary of the two uh, points of view. People urgently need he to be healed and fed. Let me tell you a greater thing than that. People urgently need to be right with God. Because he has no problem breaking bread and multiplying and feeding people. Feeding people is not a problem. He, God does this. He provides. Um, holistic fruits of the gospel are for everyone. The holistic fruit of the gospel are for believers. There's such a difference in this. People need rice, whether whether or not they're Christians. Giving rice will make rice Christians. That's a term that got out from some of this thing the mission boards pushed. You're creating rice Christians. We'll pray that prayer. I'll get baptized. You give me a sixty pound pack of sixty pound bag of rice for me if I say this prayer. I'm in. <laughs> you know how long it would take me to work to try to get fifty pounds of bag of rice for my family for this month? You're going to give it to me? See, Rice Christians came out of this. This is 
This is for years of study in missions, and and most of this, brothers and sisters, you have to understand this. This gets perpetuated or pushed from weak teaching churches, and people love. And we, I mean, I get asked all the time, "Why don't we do more mission? Why do?" More? They have no idea what we're doing. We're doing a lot of missions a lot of times. And, and again, we're trying to get more clarity and telling people more that we're doing. But a lot of said, so what would you like to do? Well, I think we need to write prisoners in jail. Sounds like a great ministry you should start. Because <laughs> we're really busy over here right now. God has not laid that on our heart. But you can start that. And uh, you want to write some prisoners, we'll, we'll help you... Uh, Tell people about that. Holistic ministries is a task for missionaries. Holistic ministry is a task for the church. So let the church rise up. Let Christ create the church. And guess what? They'll feed hungry people. They'll, they'll dig wells. They'll, they'll bring in medical supplies. All that stuff comes with the gospel. But instead we want to do it, do it backwards, right? Instead we want to get all of that to try to bait them in to the gospel. And you know what that tells us? you don't really believe the power of the gospel. Again, don't walk away from this and say Scott doesn't care about people's needs. You've heard, you've heard a lot of my testimony tonight, how much we gave and did for people. I had beat up widows. You know, ranchers are angry people a lot of times. They work with livestock. makes them angry. I, we've had wives who were beat up, living in our house, hiding out from the people's, from the, their husbands. I mean, we, we've done all kinds of things through the years. We've had families live with us, all kinds of stuff, caring for souls of people so we could reach them with the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. The first point of missions is to glorify God. You glorify God, people get saved, and you meet their needs. That's, that's how it works. So you kind of see that list there. Um, some say we should start this holistic aid of development for these reasons. Jesus was always concerned about the physical and spiritual needs of people, and so were the apostles. Actions speak louder than words. If you meet people's needs, they'll see your love. You hear this all the time, and I think there's, there's nothing wrong with these statements. Um, many places are closed to the proclamation of the gospel, um, but can allow humanitarian need. Yes, that's true. Uh, it will quickly awaken the interest and enthusiasm of the whole community when others see what's happened and may open doors to neighborhoods. So we... So some, some say we should start with proclamation. Jesus and Paul both made proclamation and teaching their priority. It quickly shows that the peace with God and eternal life are more important to us than anything in the world or what the world has to offer. If it's going to be the difference between me believing in Jesus Christ for eternity and a bowl of rice, <laughs> you're going to go... I don't want to go to hell. I want my sins forgiven. I would starve to death for this message. But God doesn't let his children starve. He feeds them. Do you Have you ever heard, I mean, it's happened out there, but have you ever heard of a Christian starving to death who was a Christian in, in a Christian community somewhere around the world starved to death? You see it on these non-Christian world vision and advertisement and stuff, Maybe maybe that's happened. God, I mean, I'm sure it's happened. I'm not saying it hasn't happened. But it is so rare. God meets needs. And I've been in the poorest places around the world. And the church is there. And they feed them. They care for them. That church has a community that loves one another. And God saves these wealthy people who are able to give a lot more than the poor people. And they provide food for them. 
It, it's, that's, that is just a false way of going about missions. And what happens is you do that so much. You do humanitarian, humanitarian, build churches and dig wells and do all this stuff. And, and pretty soon you go, did anybody preach the gospel? Well, we got all this stuff done. Just, this, is the, this is the whole idea here. So conclusion, we may try to do both, but, we will, but it will be difficult for one person with limited time energy to do both. Two missionaries may work together, one meeting physical needs and the other teaching the gospel. That works, right? Holistic ministry is a valid ministry of the church. So preach the message, let Christ build his church there, and watch what happens, especially in meeting the needs of believers. It can also be pre-evangelistic, and in some circumstances may open the door to the gospel proclamation. It should not replace gospel proclamation. That's the key here. When, when that happens, when all that humanitarian aid goes first, then the gospel, and they seem to have a lifestyle change. I mean, that's where it gets really tricky, doesn't it? Because you see people coming, they seem to have cleaned up a little bit, but there hasn't been that heart change. So now you've got them confused about their stuff. You've got false assurance. Yep. Yep. Doesn't that mix into all that, too? Yep. So what happens so often is those churches don't make it. Yep. Eventually... God pulls his blessing of the hand off of it. There's not the money to give the rice away and do all those things. The people drift away, go look for something new to try to survive with, and that church dies out. Many times I said, did you ever send anybody over there to teach the pastors theological training? No, we never did that. So they died spiritually before they died physically. The church died spiritually. And then physical death comes later. It's exactly, we see it over and over within the scriptures. And now you have this empty shell. You have a ministry that's not proclaiming the truth. And so it dies. And so that's why we say the proclamation of the glory of God, which is the gospel, and all of its incarnation of Christ and death, burial, and resurrection, and all of that, that, that presents God glorious. That has to proceed, be sustained, and be the final thought of a missionary and everything he does. And then the rest of this stuff becomes part of the tool that God gives you to even be pre-evangelistic or meet the needs. But you, you have a church, I promise you people don't starve. I promise you. I've seen it around the world. They don't starve. The church meets needs. During COVID, our missionaries did so much for people around them. And now their churches are busting at the seams because they, we sent, I mean, to Congo, we sent, did we send $100,000 in two years, I think, maybe, yeah. of the church's money to Congo, simply to provide food. We have four churches there. Out of the four churches, which I think were around 600 to 700 members in the four churches in Congo that we have there with the with the orphanage and the compound where church one is at the only people who were employed were our four pastors of those four churches everyone lost their job in congo every one of the members lost their job we were feeding four churches and we were buying busloads of rice and beans because because didier knew a guy in the government um, warehouse who would let him come in the back and load his car with rice and beans and we were shoveling money to them as much as we could. So, 
and that church fed them. Now work's starting to happen slow. It's really bad over there. Um, but it's starting to happen. But he, I think the other day Paul told me a third of their people are back employed. A third. Still two-thirds, not. Um, but, so, but the church is caring for them. And now, now we have to help in those circumstances. But those people are giving whatever they could. And most of them lost all that. They got kicked out of their little shacks. They lived in these shanties that they built up on sides of hills and stuff like that. They, the, the landlords kicked them all out because they couldn't pay the rent because they weren't working. So guess where they lived? At the church. <laughs> uh, so all of this happened. And, and, and yet they're surviving. said, Paul, what's the condition spiritually of the church? Never been better. <laughs> he says, it's tough. I mean, it's hard. Our, our orphanage is full. Babies are being left at our gate. I mean, we don't have any more room. Um, but people are coming to Christ. You know, we, he said, we just punched a, a tube through the wall to give fresh water, and we put a sign out there, fresh water will be turned on here this many hours per day. Come get fresh water from us. This is what the church does. Preach the gospel. And those men preach the gospel over there. He's trying to get me over there. I'd probably die over there somewhere. It's a, it's a tough place to go. It's not easy. Um, so you kind of see this uh, aspect. There's another one, and, and we'll quit with this because I'm really tired and need to go home. Dominion or salvation. Dominionistic versus salvish, sal- probably salvific. Or, um, the kingdom is coming here and now. No, salvation message teaches the kingdom will come when the king comes. So, and so what happens is you get over there and you're in the jungle. And there's this teaching that's going on that's this prosperity gospel. And God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you don't, it's because you don't have enough faith. So just faith your way to God and all those things. And these people actually believe that the kingdom of God is on earth right now. And, and they bought into all of this, which they tie the prosperity gospel so much. And, 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 and it just, and then in the end, they go, great, the kingdom's here, but I can't even feed my family. So God hasn't put his blessing on that because it's false teaching. So the people, they're all excited about it. They get them all worked up. And third world people can get worked up really easy. If you've ever been on, they're very emotional. They love to sing and dance and do all those things. You can get them worked up really easy. But over time, pretty soon they're going, boy, this is the kingdom. (laughs) Our king isn't who you say he is. You know, somebody murdered my brother, you know, and my sister got raped. And, you know, and, you know, what kind of kingdom is this? So so that kind of teaching got out of America and has made it around the world. And it's really caused a lot of problems. You can see a lot of, you know, pros and cons here that, that we kind of laid out. Boy, this did cut off a little bit of that. Um, let's see if we can read that bottom line. We want to transform villages and towns cities and nations we want to transform individuals see the difference of, of some of this stuff that was going on out there um, because salvation is always individualistic yeah but that's not how kingdom mind and, that, and that's how not, the Jews that's, the Jews did not see it individually Right. they did not see that they were sinners that needed a relationship with the Messiah in order to get to the Father they didn't see that and so when that message came out Jesus said in the way the truth and the life no one gets to the Father except through me. Well, who are you? We don't, we don't need your death. That's really what that came down to. And so we're going in. We're going in as a whole. 
He's taken us all. The Messiah is coming. The kingdom is going to happen. He's going to crush Rome, and this is going to be great. So if you can take Rome, maybe we'll follow you. They had no understanding of the depth of their sins. Well, that same message really gets taught. Lack of repentance. The prosperity gospel doesn't call people to repentance. They give them. They want to give them the Holy Spirit fastballs. Right here. Yeah. Quarter mile down the road. And those people are going to go to hell thinking they received the Holy Spirit. See, we're respon- America's responsible for this false doctrine that's got out there, and it makes you sick. You go to the jungle in some place around the world that seems half God forsaken, then you see believers, you didn't realize it isn't. But you go, what is that doing here? Yeah, and how is it? How did Benny Hinn and and what's hair guy in Houston? Um, Osteen. Osteen. You know, how did these guys get here? How did this stuff get here? Because it sells. You believe in what we're saying? God wants you wealthy. You're living in this shack. God wants you to have everything Solomon had. Give me your money, and you'll have. Yeah. It. Oh wait, you don't have. So, so this is what goes on out there, and, and and but the problem is, it didn't go out like that. It went in that, you know, we're we're children of the King. You know, just believe in the King. But there was no repentance message, and and so you'll you'll see. There's quite a bit of things. There was, I got some of this, and I added a couple of blocks. The different blocks that are in here. Um, this is just good, good stuff to look at. Um, current issues, more, more current issues in the um, primordialism and pragmatism. Primordialism um, wants to restore the old ways of the early days when everything was pure and good. <laughs> right there, you go. There's something wrong with that. So, somewhere along the line, we were these perfect and righteous people. You, you just read yeah. to Genesis 1 and 2 and quit? Let's say in the garden, yeah. <laughs> These people do not take history. Pragmatists want, want to do what works best now and will guarantee success. The philosophy of the church growth movement. See, this is what, 80s and 90s, this church growth movement came out. It ripped apart. I think I might have told you the mission I was with, and we had to leave the mission over this, is pragmatism. It increased the numbers of people who come to church. <laughs> Pragmatists will look uh, carefully to find out what the unchurch enjoy and give it to them. That's exactly what they did. They did not look for souls who needed a savior. They looked what people wanted. And then they wrote books on how to give people what they wanted so you could fill the church. And then you could backdoor the gospel in. <laughs> that was their whole goal. Except we don't do that because then we lose them. You lose them because they never come in and realize what they really need. They're so caught up with this God and this Jesus and a genie bottle that I just rub him and believe in him. I get whatever I want. Um, they have just watered down the message so bad. And so this, of course, got into missions. Um, and, and it became this American gospel that, that got out from there. I like so, what you said, though. It's because they didn't really believe the gospel had the power to do what it was going to do. No. And yeah. so now God needs a hand. That's assist. right. So we're going to have to fix this. We're going to have to do something different. Well, and it also padded their own pockets. Well, it did. Um, very much so. The idea is to welcome in as many outsiders as possible, then influence them for good. The difficulty is that if people feel accepted as they are, why do I need to change? <laughs> you know, and, and that's what this message says. You kind of look at this. The 
how do you say this word? Primordialism. My tongue is very tired. Um, we want to be scriptural. Pragmatism wants to be successful. We want to be a church of godly people. We want a church of many people. We want to get back to the Bible. We can't possibly get back to the Bible. <laughs> We've gone down a road that doesn't go back there. <laughs> New Testament gives us a model for doctrine and practice. The New Testament gives us a model for doctrine, but we can't but we can decide our own practice. That's exactly what they do. We we should make our church like those in the New Testament. We should adopt our church to the age we live in. Adapt our church to the age we live in. The New Testament shows us how to start and run churches. The churches were not yet properly organized in the New Testament. That's what they'll tell you. Philippians, I, Paul, and servant, bondservant Paul and Timothy, write to you and Philippi, both the elders and deacons. The very developed church in the first century um, that receives those letters. Um, not all of them were, were that way, but many of them were. Um, Christian traditions have spoiled the church. Christian traditions have benefited the church. I mean, it is just night and day the difference in these people. This is what my mission, when I, when I was doing all that work, when I told you all those stories for those 10 years in Fort Benham, that's who we were with. The whole time I was with, with them. And, and all of a sudden, this, this stuff right here, this is exactly what they started sending down the line to us. We'd go to these conferences and some guys start talking about this stuff. Of course, I'm like... That <laughs> was a troublemaker from the beginning. Yeah. They wanted rid of me because they let so many missionaries into our into our missionary agency who were not called, not qualified, and certainly not equipped. And they all go, "Well, that sounds good. This will get people saved." As though this stuff saves people. There's only one thing that saves people. It's God through His message called the gospel of Jesus Christ, and. And I said, guys, this isn't going to work. And now the mission, I told you, I think earlier in this class, I said, you know, I talked to a guy in the leadership there, and he goes, yeah, we're just really struggling. The mission just, yeah, you think? You bailed on the central message. You put people in who were unqualified, and now you have a mission that is just stale and stagnant. This mission, the whole East Coast owes much of its gospel planting churches to this mission in the 16 and 1700s. And now it's gone. Now it's nobody even knows they exist. They changed their name to called In Faith. And the whole message of why they changed it is because people faith their way to God. I'm going, they don't faith their way to God. Man does not have faith in, he's dead. He's dead. So now God gives faith so they can repent, you know, but oh my goodness. And, and I begged them and pleaded with them and they said, you need to go. And I said, I'm gone. <laughs> I had too much to do for the Lord. I mean, we're, you know, you know, I mean, I told you a little bit what's going on. We were seeing God do amazing things and, we're going to flirt around with this kind of stuff? So look at the, some of this. If, if, we, if we did, as apostles did, we might see the same wonderful results that they saw. Now, not everything the apostles did, right? You know, we, we, you know what I'm saying here. But if we, if we did as apostles did, we would be considered very old-fashioned, right? God has shown us, new, uh, shown us in the New Testament how he wants 
us to do missions now. God has shown us in the New Testament how he led them to do missions then. The New Testament is a Jew, uh, um, New Testament Jewish book origin has significant value for the church and for missions. Jewish origin of the New Testament has no significance. So what, what they really did was they took the Old Testament. They did not see what we call biblical theology, the flow of the Old Testament, the progression towards cross. And they said the, the Old Testament is full of powerful, inspiring stories for people. So teach that. So Samson and Daniel and David and, you know, and Joshua and, you know, teach those. So Christ, so the Old Testament got shelved in its use that God intended it for to show people that it was all pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they all failed. So basically, missions turned into nothing more than what the Jews believed. So this is why missions have struggled. And think about the millions, if not billions of dollars the American church through all of this time gave, thinking that they were reaching people out there and a lot of this nonsense was going on. Now, not all. There's always been faithful people, right? I've always known faithful missionaries my entire 51 years in the faith. You know, maybe not part of those early ones, but um, but I, I always had an attraction to them. When missionaries came to our church, I, would, I, I was the guy that went to them. I sat down, they tell me about it. I want to, who are these people you're talking to? How, how are you sharing Jesus with them? Um, I've always had an, so there's been faithful ones out there. But even some of the ones I supported, now I look back and actually followed up on where they were in their ministries collapsed as soon as they left the field. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember seeing in the Philippines, a particular area, and I talked to Nilo about this. I, did I tell you the story? He said, I, I saw a picture. I, I don't have it anymore. They dressed them all in white shirts with ties on. Yeah. It's a hundred and bazillion degrees down there with a thousand percent humidity. <laughs> Florida's an iceberg. Gina, every time I, Gina and I go to to Philippines, we never complain about the humidity here. It's so bad you can feel it push on you. It's hard to breathe down there. When I'm done preaching, there's nothing dry on me. I preach with a towel, and the water just runs off me. You're so tired from the humidity. So what do we do in American churches? Let's dress them like we dress the Baptists. That live in the Northeast in winter. (laughs) And then let's take a picture and send it back to the American church and say, look what we did. (laughs) I go, Nilo, where are these? He goes, they're gone. He says, they didn't last. And those, they, they took their money, they took their rice, they took, you know, and he says, I'm sure there were some true conversions in there somewhere, but there's no remnant of those churches left. He said, I was a little boy growing up with that. I didn't want anything to do with those people. I didn't want to wear a shirt and tie. And, uh, you know, so that's just that, you know, that's what this came from. I just want you to understand the difference in this. And all through this material, we'll get into it more of it next week. There's such fun stuff in here to talk because it brings up a lot of stories and understanding what's going on in the mission field. So I'll keep working through this. Uh, we'll quit for now. But, but a lot of this is arranged to help you keep coming back to the main issue. We proclaim the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sensitive to the cultures we go in. We love the people. We do want to meet needs. But that is secondary to the proclamation of the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. I will keep saying this until I die. 
<laughs> that sack frame I said it the other night a bunch of nights uh, you know last night at church I'll just keep saying that because that's what we do present the glory of glory of God through the revealed person of the Lord Jesus Christ and show his glory that is the main thing from there everything will God will provide the rest of it he just does not, not easy I'm not telling you it's going to be easy but that's what you do and that's where God blesses he loves to be renowned he loves his fame Go out and tell them how famous the Lord is. We need to do that here. And I think that's why some churches grow and some don't. I, God knows a church. Um, but I think, as I've looked at so many churches through the years and, and listened to their teaching and what they're doing, I, I think they're really good people, and I think they share the gospel, but I don't think they proclaim the glory of God. Just a real difference of proclaiming. I am a proclaimer. I do that through preaching. That's one of the gifts. And I do that through teaching. You hear a lot of my teaching gift come out in his class. Get in the pulpit, preach. You know, Wednesday nights I teach. I get more of a teach. You, you'll hear me. I just, I don't know what it is. You just kind of slip into the more instruction and teaching. And there's times to proclaim, preach. Um, that's what we taught you guys to do in that last class here, to pro- proclaim it. Um, and, and some guys will have different gifts, right? And the guys coming out of here, you, we're watching you guys. Who's got the gift to teach? Who's got the gift to preach? We need both. Every once in a while, you've got a guy who can do both. But most of the time, you have one that gravitates toward one, one that gravitates to another. But you have to have both. But both of the preaching and the teaching has to be centered on the main message, the glory of Christ. So, all right. I'm going to put my little sticky note here so I know where we're at. Next time, Aaron, we're going to pray, and uh, then we're going to hang up. All right, Father, thank you for our time together. What a joy to remember the things you've done in my own ministry. God, I give you all the praise and glory for the years. They're just a blur now, Lord. But what a joy to be reminded um, that you save. You save cowboys and Indians and government workers, and you do all of that, Lord. And uh, we couldn't do it on our own. Lord, thank you for the reminder of that today. Thank you for this class. May we all be more engaged with missions. May we all think about it more as we lay our heads down tonight. Think about how can I, can I give, can I teach, can I go, can I support in some way God's glory being presented around the world? Lord, thank you for us in leadership. Uh, cause us not to be slack in this. All the preaching and study and counseling we do, Lord, not, may we not forget that you called us to go to missions. It is the purpose of the church. So help us keep this in the center of what we do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.